to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible for horse owners and enthusiasts. Please remember with each topic we discuss that your horse is an individual. So ensure that you get some professional advice before implementing any strategies. This week, Nancy and I have had a look at a research paper that is by Lundberg, Hartman and Roth. And it is looking at the training style. So does the training style affect the human horse relationship? Asking the horse in a separation reunion experiment with the owner and a stranger. So a lot of research in the past, we've kind of quantified and evaluated what that emotional bond is, looking at it from the point of the human. But this paper is really great because it looks at how the horse reacts to being separated and reunited with their owner and also how they react to being separated and reunited with a stranger. So in the study, what they wanted to find out was whether horses show attachment related behaviors that fulfill the four features of attachment. So when we think of attachment, we've got proximity seeking. So that's trying to be near the person or the uh, um, animal that we formed an attachment with. We have safe haven. So that's feeling relief from stress due to the comfort and support that is provided by that attachment figure. We've got secure base. So that's increased exploration due to feeling safe. So the animal feels more comfortable exploring the environment. And then we also have separation distress. So it's where the animal might feel distressed in the absence of the attachment figure. And this paper, um, I just find it really fascinating. But Nancy, you were saying that it comes with a little bit of controversy. Yes, I came across this uh, paper because it created such a frenzy uh, when the Daily Mail reported on this research, and they kind of sensationalized it. Um, They kind of uh, used the headline that horses don't form attachment bonds despite despite what equine enthusiasts think. And they were referring to the attachment bonds to their owners. And so we all know that we have a certain communication with our horse. And I know that a horse recognizes um, a voice, even a car pulling up to the barn. Um, We know that because they respond to that vocally in certain situations. So um, I thought it was interesting that in this particular research, they did not allow the owners to speak. So it was done completely silent. And um, it did find out that the horse's stress levels, um, they had put a heart rate monitor on the horse, and then they monitored the behavior. And it really wasn't a huge, uh, significant amount of difference between the owner and the stranger. Now, I will say all the owners were females, and then the stranger was also a female. And I think that's what um, the Daily Mail in this case kind of ran with, the fact that there wasn't a significant difference between 
the horse being reunited with its owner and being reunited with the stranger. Um, but that's not, you know, it's easy to take that information and say, okay, well, horses don't care about owners then. They just care, you know, who's feeding me? Is this person coming back with food? Is this person providing something? But I don't think that's the case. And this research didn't say that that's the case. And that's kind of the trick to being able to interpret because already these researchers have interpreted this information. But as a reader, you have to, again, interpret it for yourself. Um, and I think if you're not used to reading research papers, it can be easy to pick stuff up wrong. But in this case, the horses essentially associate humans with providing something for them. So that's why when the stranger came back, um, the horse has more or less the same reaction as when their owner came back. Also, they haven't had a bad association with that stranger. They've already seen the stranger, like the stranger was with them, then left, then came back. So they're not, you know, anxious or worried about what this person um, might mean coming back towards them. We did it say, Nancy, whether they were like stay, you know, like pony club horses or because I did think that, too, you know, if these horses are used to having a bond with their owner, but seeing multiple people all the time then that will also have an effect on how they're going to react no matter who goes or comes. Um, but I think the really nice part about this is the researchers pointed out that when the owner was with the horse, we did see more ear twitching and more facial movements. And we do know from within the herd, when horses display any kind of facial movements, that's a massive recognition within the herd. And it's a cue that they pick up really well. So just because the horse didn't um, act a certain way when the owner came back, these cues could be the horse having an entire conversation with us that we're ignorant to because we've not investigated what they actually mean. So I think this really opened the door to a much bigger story in how our horses are communicating with us, um, more so than just, you know, kind of branding it with that one headline, they're robots, they don't form attachment bonds, because we know that's not true. And that's so disappointing to horse owners and enthusiasts because we put so much work and effort into having these animals that the last thing you want to hear is it makes no difference who it is taking care of them. I really do believe it does make a difference and that ear flicking and those prey animal behaviors uh, need to be investigated because this research was formulated off of canine research and human research, parents and children, dogs and owners. So um, they, those, you know, you have a prey animal and then dogs are predators. So interpreting this research on that same level I think we need to get more prey behavior research going before we really can assess the conclusion of this research. I think Dr. Hartman said it best, which she was one of the co-researchers on this. She said, one study cannot give all the answers. This study is just the beginning. And I think as well, like we're in constant contact with our companion animals like our dogs and our cats there's um 
you know, that cohabitation that's occurring as well. Whereas with our horses, they're not in our sitting room, you know, unless maybe you've got a miniature fella Bella that you are very comfortable with and <laughs> is in and about your kitchen. But generally they're that's- not, and we don't treat them that way as well because of their size. You know, there is um, lots of research into, you know, even bigger dogs get treated more like dogs than smaller dogs do. And that's because of, size plays a role in that and our horses are large we're not going to necessarily baby them in the same way but I suppose looking at other prey animals that are considered companion animals would be interesting to compare that the only one I could really think of is I suppose I've always thought horses are large rabbits and because their elementary canal is essentially a replica of a rabbit's and they rabbits suffer like their own version of colic and it's um catastrophic we call it gut stasis so they're very similar in a lot of ways I think it'd be interesting because rabbit bonds with humans have been looked at so maybe that's something we could look into as well and see you know where that where what information we could pull because the other thing too that they said you know I think some people were frustrated that they were comparing horses to dogs because we know they're not like for like But a lot of the time when we discuss behavior, when we're discussing a concept that we're trying to make understandable um, at every level, we're going to have to make comparisons that people are uh, comfortable with and they understand. And the first comparison we're going to make is how humans behave. So you can compare and contrast that to how the animal behaves. So I think really in this research, they only had that um, former research from canines and that's why they refer to dogs and how dogs have these attachments but they're not you know saying well horses are the same and we should expect the same outcome yeah and also um, I will say that these were um, all horses 14 mares 12 geldings that were in a boarding barn situation so they probably were used to multiple people working around them and you know, being in a boarding barn situation. So 23 of the horses uh, were very familiar with the arena that was used. So what they would do is have the owner walk the horse into the arena, and then um, they would kind of let the horse do whatever it wanted to. And they did say that the horses seem to be more exploratory with the owners than with strangers. So that could be interpreted as horses feeling more secure, like those foundations you were talking about, as long as they were with the owner. Now, they weren't as exploratory with the stranger. So that might be an indicator right there. But I think this could be replicated in the rabbit information. Kate, I didn't even know that about rabbits. So that would be interesting. Um, I didn't even know rabbits could get a colic situation. Yeah. Um, rabbits, I, I used to always say that to my students, like horses are like giant rabbits in that way. Um, again, I hope people take that with a pinch of salt and don't do that. <laughs> just comparing them. But they... They eat in the same way. They wear their teeth down in the same way. We see the same issues, um, whether it's dental, whether it's gastrointestinal. They're both hindgut fermenters. 
they both um panic at their own shadow they move sideways rapidly you know they a lot of their prey behaviors are so innate but so similar because of I think the digestive tract does play a massive role in that you know and we know that does play a role in whether they're a prey or a predator animal too so obviously there's a link there maybe there's a PhD in my future where I look into that I did not know that in um, these owners would then leave the horses and they had a stopwatch and they would time one minute and then they would return to stand in the opposite corner of where their horse was. So that's, and then they did the same method with the stranger. So that was the basis for the methodology in this research. So the owners, um, the difference was during the walking phase, the horse walked with their head higher and they explored more than with the stranger. As Kate said, there's more ear flickering than with the stranger. And then during standing still on that loose lead line, there was much more exploring with the owner. So I think there's enough here that we can kind of gather that there will be an attachment to the owner more than the stranger. It's just kind of good for me to know that when I leave my horses in someone else's care, that they're going to be fine. They're not like totally dependent on the same human doing everything all the time. And I think we all know that we all can't be with our horses every minute of every day and we all need breaks. So it was kind of good for me to hear this, that they look at all humans as as safe havens, as long as they haven't had a bad experience. And I think some people struggle with that because sometimes we put too much of um, a reliance for that emotional bond on our animals. Like, Like you, Nancy, when I go away, I don't want to be worrying that my dogs or my horse is they're missing me and that's just it's just not like in my concept of the relationship I have with them and they are spoiled rotten but (laughs) I don't ever want them to miss me I want them to be stable and comfortable and I think what's good to point out as well is that it's easy to say like you know horses have the same reaction whether it's a stranger or whether it's an owner but we do know that horses have certain reactions from the episode we did on the sex of the handler Mm -hmm. how horses reacted more to the male sex than the female more adversely I suppose you could say so we do know that they have those preferences we know they have that ability to prefer one person over another you know that's there within them so I think looking into that ear twitching and facial movement really would say a lot And I think what you've said, you know, if they were boarding horses, that's going to play an effect as well into how they've reacted. Yeah. And I I wonder if the the owners, if we all have different attachment styles emotionally, and I wonder if further research, we couldn't investigate more the human attachment, um, I guess it would be called a style of attachment. And if that doesn't make a difference as well, because, you know, sometimes um, 
like you said, people want to be the center of their horse's universe. And I think horses are so um, survival oriented that that's just not going to happen. They're going to be fine. And I, that's such a um, kind of liberating that, you know, to know that they don't necessarily make the attachment. And I wouldn't want that in my dogs or cats either. I want their needs to be met when I'm not there, but uh, you don't want them to be necessarily missing you. Yeah, I think we're not really setting them up for success if that's the case, because, you know, we know all the things that get triggered in horses with stress. We can see colics, we can see stomach ulcers, we can see a whole range of issues. So why would we want them to be feeling any kind of distress because we're not there? Um, But what they did point out is that horses that were trained with positive reinforcement, they looked for more proximity when the owner returned. So they wanted to be close to the um, owner or stranger. They just wanted to be close to that person again. And we've mentioned it before, but I think that just links back to relevance And when you use positive reinforcement, you do build that bond with the animal where they seek information from you. So they look to you to get um, a guide of, you know, what you want them to do next. And that's built up through that form of training. Yeah, I I agree totally. And I just think that, um, you know, they, they didn't take into account some of the like how many owners did these horses have in their life and how I think the owners all had owned these horses for at least one year. Well, have you ever had a horse where you just really didn't connect with them for a time period? And so um, I think that's part of the background too, that we don't know the history on these horses because you don't necessarily own a horse from weanling all their life. They go through so many different owners and I think that can make a difference. I think so too. And I think our horses these days are so exposed to so many different people because you know, they are used in competition. They might be used in showing. So even you know, if you have a mare and foal at foot and you're doing in-class showing with them, then that foal is exposed to a whole crowd of people from a young age. And then we train them to ride. We're going to have different riders on them. You know, how many people, and I I don't actually know the answer to this, but how many people do the training and the riding with their horses or how many people go for lessons or have someone do work with their horse and have their horse trained to a degree? Because I would say like a lot of owners are clued in and understand what is necessary, but you're always going to have collaboration with other professionals in training a horse. So they are just exposed to a lot more people than we probably even think when we're looking at it as an overview. And I think you're so right, Kate. The The conclusion of this would be let's set all our animals up for success, that they'll be able to cope with whatever lies ahead you know, down the road. Always have your horses well-trained, um, good behavior because things will probably go better for them in the long run if for some reason they do change hands. Exactly. 
Yep. So I think that's all I, I have on this, Kate. Do you have any other key points? No, that was everything I had too. Um, it was it was just such such an enjoyable paper. Um, and I would probably just reiterate the point you made is it is actually nice to know that, you know, when you go away, they're not, you know, looking for you. It relieves you of that guilt, I guess, when you take some time off because having horses is so all consuming um, and it's such a passion. And I think stepping away from it to have a holiday for yourself probably feels like you're cheating somehow. Um, so it's nice <laughs> to know that they're not stressed. I have to say when I went to Scotland, I came home, I had wonderful farm sitters and it was very peaceful in the barn. So I was one thing I said to them is it was every the horses told me everything when I walked into the barn, they're munching their hay and it was very peaceful. So um, I don't think they missed me one bit. <laughs> and that should be the dream. <laughs> yeah, I was very happy with that. So um, but anyway, um, I do have a point of business uh, today, and that's to congratulate Kate on her new position at the University of Dublin. She is a uh, lecturer slash assistant professor um, for the university, and she loves it. And we're so excited that she was given this opportunity. Thanks, Nancy. It's definitely um, big boots to fill, but... I love teaching and I love to talk, as you would never guess from this <laughs> podcast. So it is a great fit. And as well, it just feeds into all the research papers that I'm able to dive into and really that scientific academic side um, that I absolutely love. So I'm teaching veterinary nurses at the moment and it's it's absolutely brilliant. Love it. We don't have veterinary nurses per se in the States. We have like veterinary assistants. So I will like to say that veterinary nursing program, that is like a four-year program, right, at the university? Yeah. yeah. So, so it's a bachelor's degree that they need to do to become a veterinary nurse. And it's regulated in Ireland and the U.K., I'm not sure about other countries. Some countries do have regulations for it, some don't. But essentially, once you graduate, you are held accountable for your behavior and your professional conduct. And you need to register with a governing body that every year essentially checks that you're keeping up your learning um, and that you are essentially carrying out your duties in the right way. But I think it is a great thing that was brought in because it does protect the role so, you know, we don't just have anyone stepping in and doing, you know, anesthetics on animals or, you know, pulling teeth or even nurses don't do that over here now. So it is great to have that legislation in place because it improves welfare overall as well. But I think you're in the States, you have technicians and I'd have to look into it because essentially I think it's just like a different name. Your veterinary technicians are... Um, well-educated and trained and have a skill set and would carry out probably the same tasks. Like I know the majority of the tasks are the same. I don't know where it differs when it comes to actual surgeries. So I'll look into that and I can update you yeah. at some point for those interested. 
you know, that might be a good podcast is to look at the educational opportunities for people, uh, whether it's in the UK or in the United States, because um, I do know some licensed veterinary technicians and um, it is a licensure that they have to go through and they are kind of governed by an institution. So they are like, I know across countries, the nurses and the techs um, and the receptionists um, often don't get enough praise. And mm-hmm. it's easy to say because I was a nurse for years, <laughs> but the it is, you know, it's it is often the vets that get the uh, chocolates and the wine at Christmas <laughs> and the cards saying thank you. But receptionists always, in my opinion, were the unsung heroes because they are on the front line of everything that gets thrown in the door and then the nurses like they just put their heart and soul into it so I think it is something that we need to draw more awareness to as well I mean that's what my master's research was on like employee engagement and trying to evaluate burnout within this profession so that's a whole other episode that we can get into again and and as well as pay scale goes is you know because I always figure the veterinary receptionist they're your link to communication with either the nurse or the veterinarian so you know you have to appreciate a receptionist that can communicate and recognize dire situations and report that you know to either the or the bed or whatever well yeah, but, yeah they they need a whole skill set um you yeah. can't you have to be trained to be a veterinary receptionist it's on the job training but I think that is something as well I mean people think vets and vet nurses are paid very highly and that's why you know a lot of frustrated people will say they're in it for the money but I can tell you they don't get paid very well and yep. certainly receptionists are minimum wage when they're working in veterinary mm. practices. And just a shout out to all the veterinary practices around the world that have been open throughout COVID. Um, you know, they are frontline workers as well. So thank you to all of them because as animal owners and lovers, like we couldn't do it without them. So true. Well, Kate, I think let's wrap it up. And that what I think this is a great informational episode for everyone and we'll be back next week brilliant we'll talk to you then okay bye-bye take care